We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bob? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out? Enjoy us all. We move fast. Can you take it? No matter what you do now, you're still part of everything that's happening. Used to be in silent pictures. Used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. We need more heart in motion pictures. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? Just put your lips together and blow. Listen to me, Hatcher. You gotta tell him. I just wanna say one word to you. Just one word. Are you listening? The Boulevard of Broken Dreams. We're making another movie. This is the one I'll be remembered for. Welcome to Sword Cinema Podcast. This week we're going to be taking a look at 1986's The Karate Kid Part 2, directed by John G. Avildsen and written by Robert Mark Kamen. Here's a clip. He is quicker. Rule number one, karate for defense only. He is wiser. Rule number two, fast run rule number one. He is stronger. Miyagi taught him well. Secret of Miyagi family karate. I don't get it. Practice, you will. Can you break a log like that? Don't know. Never been attacked by a tree. Miyagi discovered the man within the boy. Never put passion before principle. Even if winning, you lose. Now Daniel must discover the man within himself. In Okinawa, Anna, very serious. Your sensei teach you how to fight with spear? No more tournaments. No more cheering crowds. This time, the combat is real. Karate Kid, part two. All right, that was a clip from The Karate Kid Part 2. Again, this was uh, directed by John G. Avildsen and written by Robert Mark Kamen. Those are the creators of the original Karate Kid. Uh, joining me, of course, to talk about this incredible sequel is Ricky D. Hello, Patrick. Hello, 2021. Hello, listeners. We are back. Yeah, this is our first podcast of the new year. An interesting choice. And, of course, one of the, the one reasons that we... Uh, or one of the things that we always ask is, why did you choose this? This is your choice, Ricky. I think I have a slight idea, but uh, but you tell me. Yeah, so I actually reviewed Cobra Kai Season 3, which I watched way back in October 2020 because I have access to early screeners. But I couldn't talk about it until they actually released it because there was an, an, an embargo. And Cobra Kai Season 3 really centers around the characters and the plot and themes of the Karate Kid Part 2 to some degree. So I don't want to spoil Cobra Kai for anyone who hasn't seen it, season three that is, but it really made me want to rewatch the Karate Kid Part 2 
And I remember liking this movie better than the original when I was younger. And rewatching it in 2021, I think it's an interesting sequel for many reasons, but it's interesting to see how Hollywood used to do sequels back in the 80s. I think it does a lot of things better than the original, and I think it makes a lot of mistakes that a lot of sequels made back in the 80s. But, for example, I think it has a better musical score. I think it has better cinematography. I think it has a better villain, even if the villain is one note over the top and cartoonish. I just like the villain or slash villains better. I think it has a better setting, even if it's not filmed in Japan. I think it focuses more on Mr. Miyagi, and I love his character, and I like the idea of centering the movie around him as opposed to Daniel LaRusso. I think the stakes are way higher. I think it has a better love interest. It also has a lot of problems. <laughs> so I would say that most of the things that you mentioned as to why the, what the movie might be better, uh, I would actually argue that they're a step back. Like that, those are where the movie falters, but we can get into that. I, I do like this movie. I don't think it's as good as the original movie. I think the original movie is just a tighter movie and it works better uh, emotionally. This one's a little more flat for me emotionally. Uh, although I do like certain aspects of it quite a bit. And I think it's a fine enough sequel for sure. Um, it, it, it gives you what it intends to do. Um, there's enough thrills and there's enough stuff going on. I think it makes some mistakes because it didn't really know where to go or what to do with this new setting and what to do with Mr. Miyagi. But uh, but we can get into all of that. I, I still do like this movie, though. And it's an easy watch. It's definitely like for anybody out there who likes Cobra Kai. I have seen season three, so um, you won't be spoiling anything for me. And I'll try to avoid spoilers as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, for me, this is an inferior sequel. Oh, I'm very curious to hear though. Why, um, like for instance, let's get into it. Like as far as the setting, I think that's the biggest change in all of this, even though there are lots of structural changes to the screenplay versus, versus the original, it, it can be seen as kind of a retread, but it's not really not, not on the writing. Um, but what do you think of the setting? Do you think that they maximize that they fully utilize the Japanese setting? I mean, to a degree. So the story goes that they actually went to Japan to that very specific location to film, but they realized it just wasn't very cinematic. And what you do see in the movie, like in regards to, for example, the U.S. airbase nearby and the U.S. military running around town, like that's what the actual place in real life looks like. But there's an actual airbase set up there, um, you know, in terms of like the way the houses are built and it's mostly a bunch of farmers that live in that specific area in Okinawa. So they they did a really good job in recreating the setting in Hawaii. And from my understanding, they picked a specific location in Hawaii, like a specific town or area, region, where there was a lot of Japanese people living there. Yeah, and they, and they basically used a lot of the locals as extras um, and just all sorts of – and as background stuff. Like they and the, yeah, they, they completely recreated, from what I understand, the look of the houses and all that kind of stuff. What a village would have looked like. But I mean, if you're gonna make a sequel, try to do something new, try to do something different. And so they they keep the two central characters, which you need to do, I think, in this case. But I like how they shifted the focus on Mr. Miyagi. Now they could have done a better job in his story, his backstory, his relationships with 
um, the people he knew when he was younger and so on and so forth. We can talk about that later in the podcast. But I do like the shift of changing the setting and focusing more of the story, having to sort of revolve around his conflict with Sato. So I think that ma makes for a more interesting sequel in terms of like them just doing uh, a sequel that takes place in California and there's some bully kid who wants to challenge Daniel to a tournament and there's a love interest and in or a love triangle, you know, the typical things that you would see in American like Hollywood films at the time. So I give credit to the screenplay writers, the, the entire creative team for trying to do something new. And I think with the setting came better cinematography. I'm not sure I should actually look it up, but I think this, this movie was nominated for an Academy Award for cinematography. It also has the great, um, the song there, um, what is the name of the song, which was also nominated for an Academy Award? <laughs> See, I, I hate this song, but I, I believe it's called um, Glory, Glory of Love. Glory of Love. Yeah, I mean, it's such an 80s song. Like, I can totally understand why you hate it. It's just that it's interesting that that song got nominated for an Academy Award because I think the first movie actually has a better soundtrack. So do I. But for whatever reason, people fell in love with the song. I don't get it. But anyhow, the... The idea of, again, shifting to, to, to like, Miyagi's past brings in new characters. Uh, I think they're far more interesting characters, or they could have at least at least been more interesting than just having a bunch of thugs running around uh, California. But, I mean, I do like the villains. Like, yes, they are one-note. Yes, they are cartoonish and over-the-top. And, I don't know, maybe I've just seen too many, like, Hong Kong slash Japanese martial arts films where most of the villains are kind of one-note. Well, I I wouldn't say that Sato is one note. He's actually no. pretty interesting. No, but Chosen is. Chosen is completely one note, and he's a psychopath, by the way. But that actor has been in a lot, a lot of martial arts movies, and he's actually yeah. like a really good villain. I think it's just that his character was written to be this one note, over the top, loony bin. He's not the problem. The actor's not the problem at all. It is absolutely the way that they wrote him. They wrote him as a psychopath, that there's no way that he wouldn't have been arrested in jail by now if if this is the way that he really acted in his in his life. Like he he's a he, there's there's the threat of you you mentioned how the stakes are higher in this one. Yeah, death. It's it's not like the first the first film where it's like, oh, I might get bullied and I might lose the tournament and you know lose respect at at high school. No, this one it's like lives are on the line. And this guy's willing to kill this this foreign kid when they didn't even really have much of an interaction. They have zero history together. Uh, Chosen is just the actor does a great job with it, and he's actually really good. I liked his stuff in Cobra Kai. Uh, there's minor spoiler, like you you already told people it revolves around Karate Kid Part Two. Well, Chosen's in the in it. I won't say anything about what happens, but I found him to be very very much more interesting in Cobra Kai than I find him to be in this, even though he, the actor does a great job at this, making him into an evil psychopath. It's just like, whoa, that's <laughs> just a bit over the top. So actually, James Crabby, the cinematographer, was nominated for an American Society of Cinematographers Award, not an Oscar. Okay. I can see, like, over time, this, this thing with Miyagi, this feud with Miyagi and Sato, clearly got to Sato and he clearly obsessed over it and it still was inside him like to, to a huge degree. He never forgot about it and it still made him angry. And I can see him imparting that to his nephew, who is also his student, his pupil. 
uh, to Chosen. And I can see Chosen's mind being warped into hating Miyagi and anything associated with Miyagi because of the perceived slight to his family, you know, his uncle's honor and just his family's honor kind of thing. And I, I so I can see that him, but it, the movie could have followed a different project, a uh, different arc with his character instead of making him go into all out complete, like bonkers, psych- psychopathy. But the, they try to justify that with Daniel because Daniel really has nothing to do with any of this. Right. I know he's just coming there as an observer. So they try to justify it by throwing in that little scene where Chosen is paying the, the local townspeople for their vegetables and he's, he's weighing everything out. He's obviously paying by weight, I guess. And Daniel discovers that the weights are actually fake, like that Chosen's been scamming the village people. And now Chosen, which is hilarious, he thinks his honor has been like wrecked. But like, yeah, you were cheating. You didn't have any honor. So I don't really understand. <laughs> like, you don't seem to have any actual principles. That's the thing about at least Sato appears to have principles, right? So I can believe the honor thing with him. Like he he gives Miyagi the three days to mourn. He seems to at least respect Miyagi's father, who was also his his sensei. And he seems to actually have an honor code. And when Miyagi does something, you know, later on in the movie, when Miyagi saves him, like he that honor code shows through and he turns everything around. Like he the 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 blood feud is is kind of over, like it's been settled. But Chosen speaks about honor, but has none. Like, he has no principles. That's what I don't get about that character. One of the things that I, th- I think they could have changed or improved on was, again, the motive for why his character is so angry at Daniel. Because he's angry at them as soon as they land at the airport in Japan, right? But yeah. there is this backstory. They mentioned it, I think, like once or twice when they reference the war and there are military troops running around. There is a, an, an air base or some kind of military base nearby. So they could have given him, um, they could have made his character just for whatever reason, dislike Americans. Cause maybe his dad or his mom or someone in his family died in the war. And that would give him a reason to hate Daniel specifically, Daniel, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like give yes. him motive, give him a backstory, but they don't do it. He's just an angry teenager. And to be fair, there's angry teenagers in the first movie. But there's there's a love triangle in the first movie. I mean, Johnny Lawrence's whole thing is that he, he sees Daniel hitting on the girl that he likes and the girl that he thought he was dating. And so that makes him kind of have to assert his alpha, alpha male status. Yeah, there, there's nothing like that here. It's not like Chosen cares about Kumiko. But, but that's the thing. Like one small change where you give this guy, this character, a scene which explains the backstory of why so-and-so and his family died in the war. And that is why he has a dislike for Americans. You know, that's just one way you could do it. One way to give this character a reason to act the way he acts. That said, I mean, I still, for whatever reason, like this movie. I think the movie has plenty of highlights. I I really, really do think it has a far more interesting love interest. And I don't know what it is about Elizabeth Shue. Like, maybe it's because I think she should have been written out of the Back to the Future sequels. Uh, I do like her, and I don't like her. Like, I don't think think keeping her character around would have made this movie better. I think they needed her to break up with Daniel, so it gives 
a reason for Daniel to meet a new girl in Japan and not seem like a douchebag who's cheating on his girlfriend <laughs> or the guy who breaks up with the girl that he goes chasing after in the first movie only to all of a sudden fall in love with a new girl right away. So, and for anyone who doesn't know, basically she went back to college. I think she was studying at Harvard, so she couldn't actually make the sequel. And so they just decided to write her out. Like there isn't even a scene of Elizabeth Shue's character, Allie in this movie. They kind of like mention her. Daniel mentions that she breaks up with him. And I think she starts yeah. dating the, the, the high school quarterback and she crashes the car. So they completely turn her you, into the, a villain. The college quarterback, UCLA. Yeah, they turn her into a villain within the first minute of the movie and without even showing her, just through dialogue, which is hilarious because <laughs> the whole entire first movie revolves around the love triangle between her, Daniel, and Johnny. So she's sort of like the catalyst that sparks the feud between those two boys. And in this movie, she's just written off and turned into like a villain, which is like hilarious. I know, all... The entire first movie. I mean, it, it it does give her character, I guess, a little more of her own life. Like, she's not just tied to Daniel. I guess, if you want to think about it in terms of lore, it gives her this her own separate, you know, like, motivations and wants and stuff like that. And it's not just, like, revolve. The world doesn't revolve around Daniel kind of thing. Right. But, but that's why I think the love interest in this movie is far more interesting. Like... The chemistry between the two actors, I actually believe that Ralph Macchio was in love with the actress. Like, I think he was attracted to her in real life. Whereas the first movie, like, the chemistry is there and I do buy into it. But I just feel like she's a far more interesting character. She's far more, she's she's mature compared to Ali in the first film. Um, and, you know, it's it's refreshing to see... Again, a new setting, new customs, new traditions. In this case, we're supposed to be in Japan, even though we're in Hawaii. And so I like the idea of having a, a, a new love interest. I just, I don't think this movie would have been good if, it, if, if they had remained in California, if it was the same love interest. Like, what would, it would just be a really boring sequel. We wouldn't even have any backstory to Mr. Miyagi. And the thing about this movie is, like, I really do think it was a good choice to focus on Miyagi and his backstory and the feud he has with Sato, but at the same time, I don't think they gave us enough of it. So he does become the central character. Like, he is sort of, like, the lead, not Daniel, even though Ralph Macho was, like, the big sort of, like, Hollywood star at the time. But I feel like they could have given us a bit more. And then towards the end of the movie, he becomes a supporting character in, like, the climax, and all of a sudden the, the spotlight's on Daniel's son once again. Well, and that's the problem that you have when you're making a movie called The Karate Kid Part 2. You still have to have the karate kid, Daniel, be the hero. And even though you might want to explore Mr. Miyagi's background, I think they do an admirable job of sort of balancing the need for Daniel to be a hero, but also diving more into Miyagi's backstory and trying to make him more of a focus. They did the best that they could with something like that. Miyagi is a very interesting character. He's and even in the original Karate Kid, he's far more interesting than Daniel. Like, Miyagi is the grounded center of the original movie as well, and his scenes are the most powerful, you know, where he gets drunk and dresses up in his old military uniform, you know, stuff like that. Those are great scenes from the original that really, really have a lot of a lot of depth to them. And and Pat Morita is such a good actor, and it's such a great role for him. Um, I, I Like I say, I, I think they, they water... This is the kind of the pro. I don't want to say problem. It is an admirable thing that they did with the sequel, trying to do something different. I really because I really do like this movie. 
You run into this issue, though, when you want to focus on something else. You still have to make Daniel the karate kid. Like, so he is going to have to, the audience expects him to have a big karate scene, and it can't be Mr. Miyagi that saves the day. It still has to be Daniel. So they had to shoehorn in some of those things. But you know what's funny is you poke fun at the title of the movie, but it's actually like a valid point, because if you're a Hollywood movie producer and you're making a movie, you know right away these dudes wanted sequels. They wanted to make money. And right away, by by ma- by calling your movie to Karate Kid, you know the actor is going to age. Eventually, he's not going to be young anymore and you know kids sometimes age really fast so this guy could have looked like he was 24 years old like a year later type thing right so yeah. they could have actually changed the title of the first movie you know what i mean like the like the tv show is called cobra kai it's not called the karate kid it gives them room yeah so yeah. if if the movie was called cobra kai like the original film they could have done anything with the sequels like it didn't even have to follow the same character Danielson. Uh, which, I mean, to be fair, in the fourth movie, they actually do follow a new Karate Kid, but that's the the problem. It just becomes a new Karate Kid that's rehashing the exact same story told from the first movie, except it's a girl instead of a boy. And, and they could have gone with a Miyagi title, you know? If you had had, like, uh, you know, uh, something with Miyagi in the title. Look, there's no rule that says that a sequel has to be called Part 2. I mean, obviously, Star Wars and the Indiana Jones movies had had demolished that idea i mean you had raiders of lost ark you had temple of doom you had star wars you had the empire strikes back you didn't you didn't have star wars part two <laughs> it was so it was i mean even though it was episode five but that's a conversation for another time um but you could have done something you could have had miyagi in the title and it would have allowed for that a lot easier and slowly gotten away from the karate kid because you're right he was going to grow up and he was going to go to college he wasn't going to be a kid anymore so I mean, they're already talking about Ali going out with a college guy, a UCLA guy. So they were going to college. Daniel's saving up for college in this movie. And Miyagi, Miyagi references that a couple of times. He's going to be a man, not a karate kid. So, yeah, don't write yourself into that corner with the title. I know they wanted brand recognition, and this is hot off the heels of the karate kid. And so you want to keep that name fresh in everybody's minds. But had you come out with Miyagi, everybody would have known what that was back then. Everybody would have known. Mr. Miyagi was huge. He still is huge. Uh, that's why they reference him a thousand times in Cobra Kai, because everybody loves Miyagi still. I I mean, I totally agree. I just don't think the studios would have taken a chance, because with Raiders of the Lost Ark, like Indiana Jones, it's still Indiana Jones and... It wasn't Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost that's a That's a retcon they've done with the titles. It was originally just Raiders of the Lost Ark, and then it was Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Right, but they added Indiana Jones for the sequel, right? So Indiana Jones was the yeah. character of the first movie, which everyone knew. And also it's They Spielberg. could have done Mr. Miyagi's Trip to Japan or something. I mean, that's obviously a horrible title, but they could have put Miyagi's name. But, but Steven Spielberg, big, huge director, yeah. he himself yeah. is a household name, George Lucas, Star Wars. I get why producers might have been too scared you got to remember that this movie was a success it was a box office success it made more money at the box office than any karate kid movie including the remake with jackie chan but like i'll give you an example why i think it's so interesting to revisit these movies like sequels that were made in 80s in 2021 because the first five minutes the scene when he leaves the tournament he walks into the parking lot and crease has the crease basically starts attacking johnny and then mr miyagi steps in to break up the fight or break up him beating up his student and then of course he tries to attack mr miyagi he misses 
His fist goes into the car window not once but twice. He's covered in blood, and Mr. Miyagi basically honks his nose like, you know, whatever, right? You know you know how it plays out. Which, which they'll call back to. Even though they don't call back to the Miyagi dodging thing, which I thought, you know, I remember when I first saw this, This was I thought this was going to be a major thing because Miyagi dodges the punches. And then later on, he says to Daniel as they're on that little hook thing in the fishing village, he says the best way to... Uh, to defend a punch is to not be there. And I was like, I was like, yeah, they, they, they needed to do that at the end. Daniel's never dodging the punches at the very end, which is what I thought was going to happen. But anyway, keep going. Yeah. So, so the reason why I bring this up is because the opening five minutes in which they recycle some of the footage from the first movie and then go back and film the original ending, because that was actually scripted at the end of the karate kid part one, but they actually never filmed it. So it's in the screenplay. Yes. It's always planned. They just never filmed it. They wanted to yeah. end on the tournament after he does his crane kick and he wins. And I think there's like a freeze frame. And the movie ends, right? So mm-hmm. the reason is, the point is, this was 1986. You couldn't just go online and stream a movie to refresh your memory. If you didn't see The Karate Kid Part 1 in the movie theater, if you did not own a VCR, if you didn't rent the movie, you have no idea what happened in The Karate Kid Part 1. So back in the 80s, some sequels would show a bit of footage of the original film for anyone who didn't see it because again 1986 no dvds no blu-rays no internet no digital streaming you know what i mean so you know back to the future for example does it in a different way back to the future basically replays the last minute or so of the first movie and then the movie begins but this movie it does the exact same thing except it takes forever for the movie to actually get going because we get like five minutes of footage from the first movie plus the original ending that was filmed for karate kid part two even though it was intended for karate kid part one so things like that i just find really funny rewatching it now in 2021 because clearly you wouldn't really have that problem nowadays like you might still approach a movie like a sequel where you would open up with the ending of the first movie Sure, but I'm just saying they wouldn't do it because they were afraid that people didn't see the movie. You know what I mean? Because nowadays, like, everyone has access to movies just basically at their fingertips. Yeah, and I think, like, this this also harkens back to the director's style. This is the director of Rocky as well, and I believe he did Rocky too. although I could be wrong about that. Uh, I would be shocked if he didn't do Rocky too. But they kind of do a similar thing there too, right, where Rocky two starts immediately right after the fight from Rocky one. And it's just kind of like, I don't mind that, that sort of, I, the recap is one thing, whatever, it's fine, it, it's short enough, there have been movies that have done it even longer than that, but um, but it does, I, I like kind of picking up right after where they left off, um, and and I, I the parking lot thing, I know some people have their problems with the parking lot encounter, because it makes Crease again, psychopathic, there's a lot of psychopathic karate dudes apparently out there, like he's about to kill Johnny Lawrence, he's strangling him in this scene and he's beating up his own students who are trying to help Johnny. Yeah. But also it leads to the replacement of the crane kick because in this movie you get the prop, which is a Japanese drum, the Japanese pellet drum, which leads to the secret of the Miyagi family karate, like the big, huge secret of Miyagi's dojo. But what really doesn't make sense is in the climax, right? This is supposed to be like the big family secret, like using the Japanese pellet drum to find a way to dodge punches and defend yourself against an opponent, et cetera, et cetera. But then in the climax, Mr. Miyagi pulls out the Japanese pellet drum, which makes sense, except for everyone in the village has a Japanese pellet drum in their pocket, pulls it out at the same time. <laughs> I was like, yeah, Wait. so 
<laughs> it was better built in the Karate Kid Part One. The crane kick was better set up as like this is the last thing. If if done right, it's indefensible. And there's the classic scene with him at the beach on those kind of poles, trying to get trying to master the crane kick, right? Because it's all about finding balance, right? Because the first, that's what the first movie is all about: finding balance in your life. And with this one, they didn't. They, they were like, we gotta have something. We gotta have a new like un, in, indefensible move for Daniel to win with. I thought it was going to be dodging punches. Because that's what Miyagi does at the very beginning. And that's kind of Miyagi's style, right? The nonviolence thing. Uh, that's what I thought it was going to be. But yeah, the drum thing's never properly set up. The first time we see Daniel do that is the first time we see the move done, period. Like, we had no idea what the drum move actually looks like. Because it had never been done. Miyagi had showed him kind of dodging that hook. But it wasn't actually... It didn't look like an attack move. It looked like a dodge. Well, it was a it was a counterattack, right? Like, but but the thing is, like, it's a good idea to, but it's a good idea to have the crane, not the killer move in this movie, because Chosen actually defends himself and blocks the crane, so therefore it raises the stakes. That's what I mean about the the, the movie. The stakes are higher, not just because he wants to kill people, but just even in in terms of like the final showdown. So I like the idea of having a replacement, but it in execution it doesn't really work. Yeah, you just you got to set it up ahead of time. And they didn't really do that. They sort of tried to do it, but they didn't do it. And that's just another example of how this movie maybe stretched itself a little too thin. There's a lot going on here. And there are a lot of interesting things going on here. Like, I like Daniel's relationship with Kumiko. It's never it's not fully developed, but it does lead to some pretty good scenes. I think the relationship is fantastic. Because here's the thing, like, he's not he's not there for very long. Like, I would say this movie spans about, like, a week's time, right? Maybe, like, a few days. And so he meets this girl. They automatically have chemistry. But it's not like they fall in love and they want to get married. Like, it's it, it feels more natural. It feels authentic. It feels real. It feels normal. And that usually happens. Like, you know, you're a teenage boy. You go on vacation to, in this case, Japan. And it's not out of the ordinary that the, in this case, the Japanese girls would take notice of the American boy because it's an American boy. He's different. For them, they're fascinated by by an outsider, right? Foreigner, someone yeah. who looks different and acts different and has the American customs. This is a small village, too. So it's going to be more foreign and more interesting. Yeah. So so I, I do buy into their chemistry and their relationship. But even her, like, she's given character and personality like we know that she wants to be a dancer like when they go into town and they pass by one of the stores i don't know if it's like a a store that sells tv sets or whatever it is but she watches the tv set it's playing i think it's playing fame right and she says like that's my dream i want to be a dancer so like we know a bit about her and she starts explaining her her backstory and the problems of her not being able to achieve her dream and so on and so forth and like little things like that makes you care more about this 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 actress this character um and then like you know we get the first date which was a, a, i guess you would call it a first date i mean it was an interesting first date they end up at the bar which is one of my favorite scenes and then of yes. course miyagi shows up with sato and chosen and he has to break the ice and of course he does break the ice and everybody knows he's gonna break the ice but the way it's set up and the suspense built around it and the it was just a very exciting scene like that's why i think when i was a kid i think the reason why i liked this movie so much better was because it was sort of uh, a window into a foreign land it's like wow this is japan this has a different sort of soundtrack and musical score than the original film 
I like these characters. You know, I was starting to get into like martial arts movies and watching a lot of Jet Li films at the time. And then, you know, of course, Jean-Claude Van Damme was big at the time. And then so it was it was refreshing for me as a child to see the villain not be an American badass like Kreese and instead be this crazy over the top Japanese like martial arts, whatever. Back in 1986, if I was a target audience, right, I think they did a good job in making a movie for the audience that they were aiming for because I was that kid. I was part of the target audience and I ended up liking this movie more than the original. In retrospect, now in 2021, knowing more about cinema, the original is one of the best films made that year in 1984, I believe it was released. And it's just like one of the best movies of the 80s. It's a really solid movie from start to finish, which focuses on this unusual relationship that we see in Hollywood movies at the time between an older man and a young boy. And it was just, it was like, you know, full of emotion and it was exciting. And this movie almost gets there, but it's, it falls short. It falls short in different categories. It falls short in terms of like the screenplay. It falls short in terms of like the way it wraps up the story for Mr. Miyagi, um, you know, so on and so forth. Yeah, and I think uh, you hit the nail on the head exactly what makes that first movie so special is that relationship between Miyagi and Danielson. And that's not present to nearly the degree in this movie because they are stretched too thin with plot points. Miyagi's got his own things going on. He's got a blood feud that he's trying to settle with Sato. He's got rekindling an old flame, right? And Daniel's sort of off on his own with Kumiko and he's, you know, running along the ocean and looking at map paintings. So <laughs> he's got he's got his own thing and then he's got this like new rivalry with uh, Chosen. So that he doesn't quite understand and nobody else does either. So it is stretched a little thin, but I do want to like stress that for all the, the, the issues with this movie, the things that could have been changed to make it better. There are so many scenes that are like really fun to watch. And you brought up the bar scene, which I think is a great one. It's hilarious the way that it starts because Daniel's like, what's this place? And she says, Oh, that's a bad place. We shouldn't go in there. And he goes, all right, let's go in. <laughs> like completely ignoring her, which is God, that, says he's somewhat adventurous right like he hears it's a bad place he wants to go inside and the whole breaking the ice thing it's i i I always remember that scene always love that scene still loved it when i watched it the other night um yeah there's the the end i think is great in the setting i love the whole setting of it even though it's completely ridiculous that all these adults will do nothing to stop these two teenagers from murdering each other potentially uh it's ridiculous but it's it works kind of as an as an 80s movie as the end of an 80s movie i don't know why it it works but it does it's entertaining um there's a lot of other things in, in here as well i think that i love the beginning when they get there and i love the way that they get picked up and they gotta like get in the taxi cab and find their way to this village that doesn't exist which and... which again you can suspend your disbelief but there are things that happen in this movie just it just doesn't make sense. I don't care if it's 1986 or 2021. Like the fact that he just shows up at the airport and decides to get on a plane. His mom's cool with him going to a different country with not a stranger, but despite his relationship with Mr. Miyagi, it's still not his relative, right? Um, to go to Japan, to have his passport ready. And, and, and did he actually have a ticket? Because like Mr. Miyagi is trying to tell him to go back. So what does that mean? He could just like refund this ticket right away. Like it's just the whole thing was so bizarre how he shows up at the airport right away. You know, little things like that. Like none of it makes any sense. But 
my problem with this movie, my my only real big issue with the movie, because everything else like I can nitpick, but it's just the opening because I think it takes so long to get the movie started because we have the footage from the first film. And then we have the ending that was finally filmed, which was supposed to be for the first film. And then we get, you know, him at, at Mr. Miyagi's home. He's explaining why Ali broke up with him, et cetera, et cetera. And then we get the airport scene. And then we get the, the scene inside the airplane. I was like, oh, my God, can we just please get to Japan already? Like, the one big flaw of this movie, it's Daniel's son's mom does not make one single appearance in this movie. And she's one of the best characters of the original film. Yeah, and she she helps ground Daniel, and she helps make his character who he is. We understand his scrappiness because of her scrappiness. Uh, she's a big part of the first movie in in making us understand Daniel. Uh, it's because like she moved her she moved herself across the country with her son. She's getting jobs. She's making making a living, trying to scrape by. She's they've got the car that they got to push. It's got a clutch. They pop the clutch on it. Uh, it's a station wagon with a clutch. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, she's a big part of that there. And again, in relationships, it's tough when you want to do a sequel because they have so many ideas and they have so many new characters that they want to develop that throwing in old characters, maybe these actors couldn't make it. Maybe they didn't want to come back. I don't know. I'm not sure how that, how that all worked out, but, um, it, it, it does make it again, feel like it's stretched too thin in parts. However, we get some really interesting things about it. Like, uh, I, I, I want to go back. The Sato relationship, to me, might be the best villain relationship in, in all of the Karate Kid movies. Because Sato's the only one. Uh, Johnny's not really, like, an evil guy. He's just a he's just a spoiled rich kid who, you know, gets jealous. And, and he's a bully. That's what he is. He's not evil. He, you know, he's, he's just kind of a bully and he sort of learns to gives Daniel respect by the end of the Karate Kid, the original one. Sato's not an evil guy either, though, which is weird because the rest of the movie does get so cartoonish. But Sato isn't. He, he has that 80s villain thing where he's like the rich guy who's going to destroy the kids community center kind of thing. Right. Which is in every movie. And they got to somehow save the village um, before Sato bulldozes it or something. So, you know, he wants his way. He wants to have that fight with Miyagi or else. And it's he comes off as the evil corporate whatever guy, rich guy. But there is there are layers to him. There are layers like that scene with, with Miyagi and his father and Sato and where the father takes each one of their hands and makes them, you know, kind of tries to bring them together. That's a great scene. And it gives Sato some depth. Like he really... He has more complex feelings going on than just revenge. Yeah. That's why I think the movie has the best villain. That's what I said at the start of the podcast. His character is by far the best baddie in all of the Karate Kid movies. He is a gangster. He is sort of like a mob boss because when they get out of the airport, there are posters on the wall for his the all the, the different businesses he owns. He actually even owns like an escort service. I mean, he is, right? I mean, he even tries to kill Mr. Miyagi in the film. Uh, I don't think he's a gangster, per se. I don't think he's necessarily doing... Well, I shouldn't say he's not doing anything illegal. But I think he is the he's the Japanese version of what so many corporate villains were like back in 80s movies. When you think of the guys in, like, RoboCop, right? Like, they weren't gangsters, but they were definitely doing illegal things, and they didn't care about people. So I think he's the, the version of that, like, this idea that 
corporations could just run amok and do whatever they wanted and treat people like cattle. At the start of the movie, they pretty much kidnap Daniel and Mr. Miyagi, bring them to a warehouse, then threaten them, and then <laughs> leave them behind. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, it really, that opening scene felt like it was a scene out of, like, a gangster film. Yeah, only they didn't, like... I mean, they, they definitely took them. I always felt that that was more like a, uh, it was intimidation and not a joke. I don't want to say that, or it wasn't a prank, but it didn't feel to me like an actual kidnapping. Like they never intended to keep them. He always, he just wanted to send him a message before he got to his dad, I guess. And he, he definitely used it to intimidate him, but I don't think his intention was to hurt Miyagi at that point. He did want to kill him. That is true. But that, that also relates back to a cultural thing that I don't maybe understand and it, and it was a very small village cultural thing dating, you know, from a long time ago, back when Japan was a different place. And so this idea of fighting to the death, like, I don't know, I highly doubt that would have been sanctioned by Japanese law, law at the time. But it's possible that people would have just allowed for it. I mean, they clearly were allowing for it at the end when the, when the kid is fighting, when Chosen's fighting Daniel. Everybody, if Daniel would have died during that, like, what do you think would have happened? Uh, <laughs> those adults <laughs> were doing nothing. <laughs> um, before we cut the break, I just want to quickly mention that the director didn't, he didn't direct Rocky 2. He directed Rocky 5, I think. And Bill Conte, who did the musical score for this movie, who I think is fantastic, he also worked in the Rocky movies as well. And this musical score was supposed to be for one of the Rocky films, only he decided to use it for the Karate Kid Part 2, which is why I think it has the best soundtrack. Actually, the soundtrack for Karate Kid Part 3 is maybe just a bit better, even if the movie isn't better. Yeah, I I, I feel like the first one hits the cues better. I do like that. And I, I guess maybe... I like Miyagi's theme from the first one, and I really like the end. I like the music at the end during the tournament. I'm more of a fan of the first one, but this one still does the job, I think. Uh, I'm not as big of a fan of it, but... I think you're right. I think they mix the music better in the first movie, and I think the pop music is better. So the the, the you're the, the best pop... around is a way better song than anything in this movie. Oh, for sure. That's like one of the <laughs> best songs from the '80s. But the combination of the pop music, like the actual soundtrack and the musical score in the first film, works better than the combination of the pop music and the musical score in this film. I still think it works, but I do agree that it works better in the first movie. But I, I mean, if you were to like get the vinyl records and, and just play the vinyl records from start to finish. And I, I was listening to the score like last night before I went to bed. I really do think that the musical score for part two is just so good. Well, and you know, it's a different setting, so it couldn't be the same. Uh, I think it works for where it is. It's a different kind of movie, even though it has some of the similar beats, um, I, the Japanese setting, it needed to be a different score. You couldn't still have the same, the same music, uh, because the setting is so wildly different, which is again, one of the best things about this, the, the this Karate Kid Part 2 feels so more, much more exotic and they would revert back to just the California, you know, stuff and crease and all the, like part three was just kind of like trying to retread part one in many ways. Um, but this one was so different. It stands out so much from the, all other Karate Kid films. It's very, very distinct. And this, the score was going to have to be different. It, it couldn't be the same traditional one. But uh, with that, let's, uh, let's take a quick break, and we'll come back with our five questions on the Karate Kid Part 2. Here's another clip. 
<laughs> Come, take off jacket. You try. Must focus. Concentrate. Focus. Most important. I can't, Mr. Miyagi. Not today, all right? I'm just not in the mood. Why? Because my whole life is going out of focus. That's why. When you feel life out of focus, always return to basic of life. We're praying. Breathing. No breathe, no life. <laughs> Good. Come back to work. All right. That was another clip from the Karate Kid Part 2. Uh, we are at the portion of the podcast where we do our five questions. And even though it f- feels like we've been mostly ripping on this, the, the flaws, the issues with the, this film, um, we always like to stay positive. And this is a good movie. And so we're going to start off. We like to kick it off with what is your favorite scene, Rick? Wow, this is really hard. So here's the thing about The Karate Kid Part 2, and one of the reasons why I love this movie. I think this movie has three of the best scenes in the entire franchise. So, so I'm not sure what you're going to pick. So Hmm. I'm just going to stick with the scene (laughs) that I spoke about earlier on, which is the tea ceremony scene between Daniel's son and Kumiko. I think that is such a beautifully shot scene in terms of like the lighting, the way the two characters are framed with the backdrop and the silhouette of the two characters where they are just about to kiss, the candlelight, the chemistry between the two actors. If I were to have to defend why I think Kamiko is Daniel's most interesting love interest, I would point everyone to that scene. I love, love that scene. Well, it's great that it's mostly wordless, too, and it's set up properly. It's a payoff, essentially, because you had seen this scene play out from a distance with Miyagi and Yuki. I I complained about the scene earlier on in the movie about how it takes so long for the movie to get going. And there is a scene in the airplane. I was like, do we really need the scene? The one thing that that scene offers is the fact that Daniel picks up a book and reads up on the history of Japan and this specific village. And so he knows about this very real, real world tea ceremony. It's a tradition in Japan, right? He knows Mm -hmm. about this specific tradition. He knows what you're supposed to do. The little subtle things like folding the napkin how you're supposed to, of course, remove your shoes before walking in, how you hold the spoon, et cetera, et cetera. It felt so real. So he does, of course, know about the traditions of this specific village in Japan. So I really, really dig this scene. Yeah, it's it's a really good scene. I, I do like this is probably the best shot scene of the film as well. I, I It really it's all 
pretty much almost all told through visuals and it's it ends very nicely and you know with a nicely framed kiss well, like you say with the backdrop out the window and the silhouette and it's a, it's, a, it's a nice very nice scene um i'm gonna go for something a little more cheap thrillish i guess <laughs> and we already brought this scene up as well i do really like the bar scene um with the breaking of the ice yeah the, it's my second favorite scene yeah there's something it's very very karate kiddish <laughs> to me and i love the way that like Miyagi, like everybody shows up everybody just happens to show up at this place i know that kumiko you know run, runs out of the bar and you know to go get help and stuff like that but sato even shows up and everybody's betting on daniel and and miyagi's sense of humor which i think gets overlooked at the time he's one of the funniest he is the single funniest character in all the karate kid movies he has the biggest sense of humor he gets the most laughs um this is just another one of those scenes where he is funny like he's just he's he's betting on that he's betting basically all their money that, that daniel's gonna break through all of this ice and he doesn't really know whether it's gonna happen or not or at least you don't know whether he, it sounds like he's doing it on a wing and a prayer um that he's just taking a risk and it's just kind of funny and it's again it's one of those signature moments where daniel achieves something daniel understands what miyagi has been teaching him you know how to breathe and how to focus the whole thing with pounding the nails at the beginning that pays off in this ice block scene it's just it's just a really memorable kind of memorable scene just from how it starts to how it finishes too yeah he's very witty he's very sarcastic he clearly is the funniest character in all the movies and i like the way it ends where he takes the money and he gives daniel's son most of the money for his college tuition but keeps a bit so they can go and enjoy lunch yes exactly yep so he's he's always it's got every element of miyagi's character all in there kind of the seriousness but also the whimsy and then just a little bit of, you know, impishness in there as well. Uh, he, he's a great, great character. I, I do want to give a special mention to the opening because I do like the way it's shot. And I do like having Kreese walk out and be the real villain and having the audience sympathize for Johnny. So I do like that. And I do like the fact that they didn't include it in the original film because I do like the way the original film ended but it's nice to actually see it come to life knowing that it was in the original screenplay and that they did not film it but i still think it's a really well-made scene and it's a i don't know like i think that scene this might sound strange but 30 years later that scene feels so much more important now that we have the cobra kai series oh absolutely i mean they basically i i think they made cobra kai based on that scene it it really seems to i know that they could have easily done it you know the whole johnny's perspective they could have done it regardless even if you never had that scene but that scene redeems johnny so much and it makes crease into so much of a villain which of course you know he would later on become in the karate kid part three as well yeah that's Um, why i think it's one of the most important scenes in the franchise maybe not the most important but one of the most important scenes definitely especially now that cobra kai exists and is part of this franchise it is there's no question like it might be the most important scene I would say even more so than like emotionally, like for character purposes, it's more important than than Daniel kicking Johnny in the face, uh, which is a great ending to the Karate Kid. But this one impacts their lives, I think, so much more. Okay, so with the good stuff, I mean, we talked about some of the issues that this movie has, and I think we sort of touched on some things that we would change. But nevertheless, we're going to ask this question. Uh, If there's one thing, just one thing, and I think you kind of alluded, you alluded to a few things, but if there was just one thing you could change, what would it be? Wow. 
I, I mean, I think I already mentioned the big change, and that's to give Chosen some sort of reason to behave the way he behaves in the movie. But maybe my fourth favorite scene is when the town is hit with a hurricane. And so there's a young girl on the bell tower, and Danielson has to go save her. And Chosen basically turns into, like, the town coward. For someone who walks around so macho, someone who wants to look brave and tough, it didn't make sense that he would allow everyone to see him cower in inside the hut. You know what I mean? Like, it, like it would make more sense if maybe he left or pretended like he was going to go save the girl, but didn't actually go save the girl and went back home or took shelter at the, somewhere else. Like, I don't know. It just didn't didn't make any sense that he would allow everyone, including his sensei, his uncle, to see him act like such a coward. Yeah, because this could not have been the first time in his life where he would have been faced with a difficult choice. And I realized that, like, maybe his life is on the line for this. However, the reason that scene doesn't work is because eventually he runs out the door. So he was so scared to go outside. But now, as soon as he, he feels like he's being shamed, he just immediately runs outside. It doesn't, that doesn't work. Like, he, if he was that terrified, he would have stayed in there and just let that hatred fester as, you know, as he felt all the eyes on him or what he felt were all the eyes on him. He would have, uh, he would have just, like, that would have made him bubble and he would have just sat there in the corner, you know, watching his uncle make up with Miyagi and, and hail Daniel as the, the, the great hero. But instead they make him run away. And it's like, well, wasn't he just scared of going outside in the storms? But now he's yeah, like, not. I think you could have refilmed the scene where they don't put a focus on him. Like he's in the hut. He's in the corner. No one really notices him. It's clear that he's too afraid to go outside and save the girl. So Daniel's son goes to save the girl. And of course, Daniel said and Miyagi save Soto. All of that makes sense, but not to have the shot or even the people in the hut focus on him and know that he's there, know that he's a coward. Like he could have just been in the background observing the whole entire thing and we, the audience, audience know that he's a coward, but it just didn't make sense that he would allow everyone to see him like that. And like you said, run out at the end of the day. And yeah, exactly. And then later on, it's like, okay, he has to reestablish his honor by killing Daniel. But what you're essentially looking at here is how does this look in this? How will this reestablish his honor in the eyes of the townsfolk? He's essentially killing a hero after he was a coward. He's not doing anything brave to reestablish himself. This person didn't insult him by being a hero. Um, it's very problematic. Like, I would like to know how someone from Japan would think about the writing of this movie where it pretty much implies that Japanese people are just killers for no reason. <laughs> like, it just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> well, it implies that the honor code is really messed up in, in many ways. Like, <laughs> really messed up. Uh, and there are honor codes everywhere, right? But they I don't think they usually involves... It, it goes a little wonky, I think, in this one. Um... I mean, that's a great thing to change. There are a lot of little things that I guess I would change in this movie. But as far as like the, the number one, that's a big one because it affects the final scene so much. Um, I guess hmm, I would have saved Miyagi. I would have probably switched the two scenes. I know that the Karate Kid is the hero. And that he's got to have the, the final scene where everything happens. But I would have switched the, the two like triumphs. I would have made Sato and Miyagi make up at the very end, and Daniel and Chosen fight earlier. I think it would have had more more of an impact, uh, because that was the more interesting story. Daniel's whole thing with Chosen wasn't really that interesting. It was just a, a retread 
a lesser retread of the Johnny Lawrence storyline, essentially. Only this time it was for, you know, for lives. Well, lives were on the line. But the more impactful, like, undercurrent story that's going throughout this is the feud between Sato and Miyagi. I would have made, I would, I would have changed things around so that they come to an understanding towards the end and that their, their issues are resolved last as opposed to Daniel's and Chosen's. I just think it would have, it would have thematically worked better for the movie. And then Daniel could have seen his mentor, how, how his mentor resolves something peacefully while Daniel had to fight to resolve his thing, Miyagi resolves it in a completely different way. And then Daniel could have learned a lesson, I guess. And that would have helped the Miyagi character, like, you know, teach the audience a lesson as well. Like, hey, here, this was one way to resolve your issue, but issue, but here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to push back on this idea, but not right now. I'm going to have to wait till you ask the final question. Oh, interesting. All right. <laughs> okay. So uh, with all that said, who do you think, Rick, is the MVP of the Karate Kid Part 2? Well, I mean, is it not Pat Morita? I think it always is. <laughs> like, I think it is, right? Like, whatever, whatever Karate Kid movie you're talking like, about. I like Ralph Macho, and I remember as a kid, it was kind of annoying how all the girls just fell in love with this kid, right? But, I mean... Pat Morita, he's just incredible. And he has such great on-screen chemistry with the entire cast. Not just one person, not just two people, everyone. He's funny, he's smart, he's patient. He's just a great actor and he fits the bill of this character. And the fact that they give this character more story, it means more dialogue, more screen time, more scenes for this actor which therefore makes the movie a better movie so for me it's no question it's him yeah and it's it's funny because daniel is when daniel tries to be the miyagi character like to give advice in this you know when he talks about his his father uh dying it, it comes off more like platitudes miyagi makes those platitudes work i should say morita makes those platitudes work but um there's so many people that couldn't because it's not exactly the sharpest written script of all time or anything like that. Uh, but Marita can make any dialogue that he's given sound profound, <laughs> which is, and it's not just cause he's Japanese. It's cause he's doing this. He, he's really, really, really grounded. And that scene where they talk about his father and Marita has to cry. That's a, that's a one shot thing. And you can tell that's not fake tears. You see what I mean about how this movie has more than three great scenes already five great scenes we've mentioned because the scene when he goes to see his dad right before his dad passes away and he says if i am dreaming let me never awaken if i am awake let me never sleep that's a fantastic scene this is what i mean about this movie like as much as we want to complain about certain elements and, and aspects of this film in terms of like character uh the screenplay etc etc it has so many so many great scenes well, in some ways, I want to liken it to, and you tell me what you think about this, but I want to feel like the Karate Kid Part 2 is the Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom of the series. It, it gets maligned a lot of the time for certain things, but it is wildly trying to do something different than the one that came before it. It's going for a different tone. It's got a different setting. It's way more exotic. It's trying, it's reaching big. And it doesn't mean that it always works, and it may not work for a lot of people as a whole as much as the original did, because the original is just such a tight, simple uh, screenplay. 
But but what it does have is it has a lot of great scenes, just like the Temple of Doom, which has a lot of great scenes, and maybe for some people it doesn't work as a whole. But there's stuff in there that's so great. What's good? At, what is good is so great. I think that's why I like the Karate Kid Part Two because they at least try to do something totally new, even if it follows the same characters, and even if we know that it's going to end with some sort of like showdown and some sort of like karate tournament, which by the way, I'm still confused about the ending of this movie, but whatever. That's why I appreciate this movie. I appreciate the fact that it tried something new. I can never fault a filmmaker for trying to do something new and having ambition. So yes, there's flaws, but I would prefer flaws than something that's stale and boring. That's just trying to rehash what we saw and got in the first movie. And that ends up being a complete disaster or, or is just boring. There's nothing worse than a boring movie. I would much prefer to watch a movie that's exciting and entertaining, like the karate kid part two, that has like five great scenes, even if it has flaws and watch something that maybe doesn't have as many flaws, but it's just completely boring to watch. Yeah, it does have lots of great scenes, uh, but I guess, okay, well, that, that's a good, nice segue into our next question was, which will be, uh, does it pass the Howard Hawks test? Which is, of course, a great movie is comprised of at least three great scenes and no bad ones, Rick. <laughs> so the question is, does the Karate Kid Part Two pass the Howard Hawks test? It's a tough question. I don't think it does. I've already mentioned it has five great scenes, but I feel like it has a bad scene. I'm just not entirely sure what I want to call a bad scene because chosen is problematic in the movie so what is the bad scene like it can't just be a bad scene because chosen's in the scene there has to be an actual bad scene and i'm trying to think what is the bad scene because i could swear when i was watching the movie i was taking mental notes of like this is going to be my answer and i can't remember what my answer is but i'm going to say no it doesn't well i'm going to say that i like the hurricane scene on as far as rescuing Sato goes, but the little girl, the rescuing little girl is terrible. <laughs> it's terrible. Like everybody's just letting Daniel run around in the lightning and the storm. Uh, I, I don't like, I, I think that one's no good. I think that the, their date where they go touring is kind of embarrassing in an eighties way. Now it's very dated. And like I say, them running around looking at matte paintings of the castle. And... Well, compared to the date in the first movie, it's not a very good date. No, no. They just, they're just like, that's where that song comes into play as well. And it's just not a great song. Um, I don't know why everyone loves that song. It's not a good song at all. No, no, no it's not. But I hesitate to at least call that a bad scene just because it's dated. I don't know that it's bad it just is very dated i will say though that the rescuing little girl i think is definitely a bad scene. but but you know it's a bad scene the bad scene is at the start of the movie when they get to the airport and they are in the airplane that is a bad scene two bad scenes and when they arrive in japan also a bad scene three bad scenes back to back i'm gonna say that also the scene in the like the 50s dance place I think that when shows when Chosen shows up and that whole fight goes down and then he like threatens to almost to rape Kumiko or something like that. Also, he gives him a low blow, which feels yeah. out of character. Yep, exactly. Uh, so there's a lot of different things that go wrong in that particular scene, which is so unlike the bar scene filled with tension and you know the the final release of breaking the ice blocks and it's kind of has everything to do with karate. I'm not really sure what the purpose of the 50s dance club scene was other than to throw in like the fact that there's this 50s dance club there. 
and to give them an excuse to run away, I guess. I don't know, just to show more chosen bullying. But we don't establish anything. We don't learn anything in that scene. It could have been completely cut from the movie and nothing would have happened. Uh, other than we get to see Daniel dance, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, so no, no Howard Hawks for me. Not for this one. Uh, the first one I would have said yes, because I don't know if there's a... Well, I'd have to go back and rewatch that and see if there's a bad scene in it. There might be. But um, I'm guessing the odds are a little bit lower. But still, a very good movie, and it's still a thoroughly entertaining movie that's done well enough, I think, that, that anybody could watch it. Uh, but if there's... We're gonna we're gonna try something a little bit different in the podcast. Normally we ask, you know, who's this you know, who is this for or anything like that. We've always struggled with that question a little bit because it can kind of sound kind of samey, the answers can. So instead we're gonna go in a, a different route. And Rick, if there's one thing, one thing that hasn't been brought up that you're gonna remember about the Karate Kid Part Two, what is it? So my favorite line of dialogue and maybe my favorite moment is when Daniel's son says, Live or die, baby. Like, I love the delivery of that line. And when I was a kid, that's the line that my friends and I would quote over and over for an entire summer. I just love his delivery in that line. Like, it's probably the best delivery the actor's ever done in the entire Karate Kid franchise. And it was followed, though, by one of the worst deliveries that he had for the entire movie. And that was the honk. Right, right. <laughs> Where he tried to honk like Mr. Miyagi honks. Mr. Miyagi, Mr. Miyagi actually honks when he does it, changes his voice, but Daniel just sort of goes, honk. <laughs> Didn't quite pull that one off. But the liver die was really good. And he, his, his expression was good. Everything about it, all the, the entire position, Chozo's fear was good. That's actually a great moment right there. It's better than Miyagi's moment, I think, with Crease. Which it should be, because it's at the climax of the movie as opposed to the beginning. Uh, if I'm going to remember one thing about this, just one thing. I mean, I, that well, we haven't brought up yet. Um, <laughs> I think... I, I... There's a lot of little things about this. For some reason, I, I really like the part when Daniel waves at Kumiko. Like, she waves him when they first meet, and then all the little girls around him giggle. I don't know why that's always stuck out to me in my head as like super realistic. I totally agree. But that's why I love their relationship. Like there's also a great scene when he starts to dance. They're outside. She's teaching him a specific dance. And the three girls are standing in the background watching and they start laughing. Scenes like that seem so real. You know what lesser movies would have done? They would have cut away to the little girls running away from what they're doing and running up and watching them. But instead, you just have to – he's just showing Daniel and Kumiko dancing, and you have to pay attention to the background and notice that the little girls who had been playing by themselves off in the background are slowly breaking away from that group and coming to the edge of uh, – I don't know if there's a little brook there or something. But they're, they're, they're still in the background, but they're now watching Daniel and Kumiko dance. And then they laugh, of course, when the dance is finished at the end. But it's kind of a nice little subtlety thing. And I don't know, when they when they first meet, I just always found that super realistic. Like that's a it seems like such a real life moment to me that you would wave at somebody, especially kids at that age, uh, between two teenagers and then the smaller kids, like they would laugh about that. But I'm telling you, the whole entire film, there's so much going on in the background. That if you pay attention, you realize what a great job the director is doing. For example, there's one scene when Daniel's walking down the road 
and a girl passes him by and she gives him a double look as if to say that she thinks he's really good looking. But it's not Kamiko. It's just some teenage Japanese girl. So the entire movie, there's always eyes on Daniel because he is the foreigner. So everyone in the background is always in in character, even if they're an extra. Yeah. Like, it's the same director. It's the same creative team. I think the thing is, and I don't know because I wasn't there, but I'm assuming because they couldn't get some of the original cast members, because they were under pressure to start filming a sequel only 10 days after the original film was released in theaters, because there's pressure from the producers, because they are spending a lot of money on the movie, et cetera, et cetera. I think that they rushed a production and I still think they, they came out with a pretty good movie. Yeah. It also feels rushed to me and that's what makes the accomplishment that more impressive because usually when somebody rushes production, you can tell, and it's kind of, it's very disappointing. This feels like a rushed production in, in some ways. Maybe it wasn't, I don't know. I mean, it seems like they shot for a good three months, so it isn't like they, they rushed it in that way, but they might've rushed pre-production a little bit. I'm not sure. Ralph Macho's 60 years old or 59 yeah, yeah, I, he's in pretty good shape. I'm in Cobra Kai, which, by the way, I like. I, I think it's a good show. I think it's a worthy follow-up. Uh, I, I especially thought the first season of Cobra Kai was amazing. We might as well get that out of the way really quick before we wrap this up. Um, yeah, I, I, and I thought the third season, I think your review was pretty much spot on, by the way, because you wrote the review for the third season. It is not as good as the first season, but it is marginally better than the second season. Yeah, my favorite uh, character that he ever played was uh, Thomas Howell from The Outsiders. I always yeah. thought he was a badass in that movie. Oh, by yep. the way, that's something that really bugged me because I was watching The Outsiders. I'm a huge fan of that film, okay? And I'm watching The Karate Kid, and I'm like, man, he has, like, the worst haircut. Like, <laughs> like honest to God, for someone who was this teen idol and he was known for The Karate Kid films, he looks really cool and badass in The Outsiders compared to The Karate Kid. Oh, well, he was supposed to be a dork in The Karate Kid, though, to be fair. Like, he couldn't look cool in that movie. He was supposed to be picked on. He had to be kind of goofy and, and very, you know, like, hand-me-down yeah. clothes. Maybe and, for the uh, first you know. movie. They could have changed his look for the second film. That That is true. By the time the second and the third movie roll, rolled around, they could have uh, they could have definitely experimented with that a little bit. Like, he's got more confidence, and, the, and they could have used a haircut to kind of showcase that confidence as well. Just little visual cues to show that Daniel isn't quite the same that he was, the same guy that he was. He has changed. Which would have paid off nicely in the third movie when he, like, steps away from Mr. Miyagi for a short time and joins Cobra Kai. But we'll have to save that for another podcast. Uh, all right, that was, that should about wrap things up for the Karate Kid Part 2, uh, first podcast of the new year. We'll see. There's going to be a lot more movies to do this year. We'll see what those are. Uh, Rick, where can we find everybody here? Where can, where can everybody find us is more what I'm trying to say. So you can find the podcast just about everywhere. Um, Goombastomp.com is the home of the podcast and you can find all the links over at Goombastomp.com just check the podcast category section but yeah the podcast is on iTunes YouTube Stitcher Podbean everywhere like it's honest to god like it's on nine or ten different platforms also visit our sister website TiltMagazine.net the two websites are sort of like interconnected so if you land on Goombastomp you can easily get to Tilt and from Tilt, you can go to Goombastomp.com. Yeah, and Tilt has most of our movie coverage these days, does it not? 
as of 2021, I would say about 95% of our movie and TV coverage will be shifted over at Tilt, and Goomstop will focus more on video games, anime, wrestling, etc., etc. We're still going to have TV and film coverage at Goomstop. We're keeping the podcast at Goomstop because we started at Goomstop, so we're going to keep it up at Goomstop. Sure, that makes sense. All right, that should about do it, and we will see you guys next week. You know, when my father died, I spent a lot of time thinking I wasn't such a great son. Like maybe I could have listened a little more, spent some more time with him together. I felt so guilty, you know, like, like he did everything for me and I didn't do anything for him. One day I realized I did the greatest thing for him before he died. I was there with him and I held his hand and said goodbye.